Who is the Son of Man? Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of August 23, 2020 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Neville Jones has us considered Jesus' preferred title, Son of Man, and Peter's epiphany that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In a place with a long history of idolatry, God the Father revealed to Peter the powerful truth on which God builds his community. Jesus very quickly affirms Peter's confession, not far from a location dubbed the Gates of Hades. There, Jesus declares that the counsels and schemes of the enemy, personified as death, will not prevail against his people. Instead, resurrection himself wins the victory. We're going to continue worship with the public reading of Scripture. And our first passage comes from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 51 verses 1 through 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Maybe it will appear on the screen. Verse 1 begins as follows. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like a garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me O my nation, for my law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm will they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the Gospel of Messiah Jesus, according to his Apostle Matthew, taken from the 16th chapter, beginning at the 13th verse, a quite famous conversation between Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or even one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord, and we pray that you would honor us by your presence and speak through my words, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would magnify our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your words, and we pray that you would feed our spirits tonight. Amen. Tonight's sermon is on the gospel reading, the one we've just heard. This is a familiar story found in all three synoptic gospels. The account in Matthew that we saw is the longest, about twice as long as those in Mark and Luke. Now, if you'd like a title for this talk, it's Who is the Son of Man? Not stunningly original, but at least it's the question at the heart of this passage. And this passage is important for several reasons. And there is a lot of commentary on it. One verse in particular is well known for its different interpretations by Catholics and Protestants. Another reason for its importance is that it represents a turning point in the gospel narrative. And there are four aspects to this. Firstly, there is this declaration by Peter of who Jesus is. Then we see that Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what will happen in Jerusalem, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Thirdly, he also teaches more in detail about the cost of discipleship. And then fourthly, there is the account of his transfiguration on the mountain, that unique revelation of the kingdom of heaven coming in power. Today, we will look at just the first of these four aspects. Peter's declaration about Jesus' true identity followed by Jesus' response. The more I've lived here in Israel, the more I've come to appreciate the physical setting of the stories of the Bible. Saint Jerome, the theologian who spent many years studying scripture in this land, coined the phrase, the fifth gospel, to describe the effect of seeing and experiencing the land of the Bible. He said, read the fifth gospel and the, four, the world of the four will open to you. So, our story is set in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. And knowing something about the place and its history will add to our appreciation of the events that took place there. The archaeological site of, of Caesarea Philippi is now called Banyas. It's in the northernmost part of Israel, some 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus' time, 
It was also near the northern limit of the area under Herodian control. Jesus, as we read from the Gospels, often sought out places away from the crowds so that he could have some quality time with his close disciples. And Caesarea Philippi in the north was certainly well away from the places around Galilee that Jesus frequented. But in this case, it seems that Jesus chose this place not just for some private teaching, but also in order to, as we say, make a statement. Because the noteworthy thing about Caesarea Philippi was its association with idolatry. In fact, it was probably the most notorious example in the region of Galilee of idol worship. What's more, it had been a center of idol worship for hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. So going back into Old Testament times, this region was a center for the worship of a golden calf at nearby Dan, and later of various Phoenician gods, in particular Baal. Then moving on in time, following the conquest of Alexander the Great and the influence of the Greek culture, it becomes a place for the worship of Pan, who is represented as part man, part goat, and worshipped as the god of nature, shepherds, music, fertility, and a number of other less savory things. That would have been happening since two or three hundred years before the time of Jesus. Then just a few decades before this story that we heard, Herod the Great built an impressive temple to the Roman Emperor Augustus in front of the Grotto of Pan. Actually, everything that Herod built, Herod the Great built, was impressive. That was his style. And in this picture here, I understand it's the temple on the left, which is the one that Herod the Great built, in front of the cave at the bottom of the cliff. When he died, Herod died, his son Philip was granted rulership over this area to the north and the east of Galilee. He built a city here and changed the name from Panius, which was named after Pan, to Caesarea Philippi, named after Augustus Caesar and himself. The site at the foot of Mount Hermon was no doubt chosen for a place of nature worship because of its natural features, which were remarkable for two reasons. You can see in the photograph there the uh, temple site on the right, and flowing out of the middle is this, the stream, which is one of the sources of the River Jordan. I mean, it was then and it still is one of the three sources of the River Jordan, and that in itself was reason enough to build a city there. But in addition, the abundant spring water emerged from a large cave at the bottom of the cliff, and water welling up in this cave was thought to be bottomless, according to Josephus at least, and hence it was understood as the location of an entrance to the underworld. And as I understand it, this watery cave was referred to as 
the gates of Hades, which makes it interesting that Jesus should use that very same term in this story. More on that later. Animal offerings and even child sacrifices were thrown into this water as an offering to Pan. Because of these sacrifices and the other excesses of idolatry in general, Jews were forbidden to enter the area around the temples. But I'm sure that there was no shortage of stories about the goings-on there, such that the disciples would have had a pretty good idea of what it was like. So nearby this center of idolatry, Jesus poses this question to his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm sure you're aware that the term Son of Man is Jesus' preferred way of referring to himself. It appears nearly 200 times in the Bible and about 87 times in the New Testament, most of which are in the Gospels. So I think it may be helpful to list the various ways Jesus used the phrase Son of Man to get a feel for what the disciples might have gleaned from Jesus himself about about Jesus' character and his mission. So these following examples all come from Matthew's Gospel and appear before chapter 16, which is where our story is. So this is it. This is the list. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And for that reason, he was described as a glutton. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Analogy with Jonah. And from the parable of the wheat and the tares, the Son of Man is he who sows the good seed and he will send out his angels to reap the harvest. Now some of these phrases reflect his humanity. For example, he has nowhere to lay his head. And some clearly reflect his divine authority. He has power on earth to forgive sins. But none of them directly suggest a messianic or kingly role. In response to Jesus' question, the disciples offer some fairly predictable replies. For example, Elijah. And this is because of the prophecy in Malachi which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Or they said, one of the prophets. And that's because of what Moses wrote. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, we read that Herod Antipas at his birthday banquet, had killed John the Baptist, had executed him. And 
Herod was of the view that Jesus was John raised from the dead. And this is what the scriptures say. Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And I'm sure there were no shortage of people who really respected John as a prophet who would rather have liked the idea of John spooking Herod, giving him a surprise. But Jesus is more interested in what the disciples think. So when he says, but who do you say I am? The question is addressed to all the disciples because you is plural. But in typical form, Peter is the first to answer. And he makes this bold confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus clearly affirms the truth of this. This is in contrast to numerous times in Matthew's gospel where Jesus had to rebuke the disciples for their lack of faith. This time, it's a resounding endorsement. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. For much of his ministry, Jesus tried to keep this understanding his identity from being conveyed by any other source than his Father. For example, when he cast out demons and they knew who he was, he commanded them to be silent. Luke writes, and the demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them and did not allow them to speak. And Jesus goes on to respond to Peter in this way. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now I'm sure you know that there is a word play on the name Peter, which is a name Jesus gave to him, and the word rock. Peter in Greek is Petros, and rock is Petra. It's clear that Jesus is using this play on words to say something important to Peter. The question is, what? What was he saying? And you probably know that the Catholic Church understands this verse to say that it is on Peter personally that Jesus will build his church, effectively identifying Peter as the first pope. Whereas Protestants had a variety of views, but usually understand the rock to be better seen as Peter's role as confessing Jesus as the Messiah. So although the Peter has the distinction of being the first to make this confession, the other apostles would share in that role as they too confess Jesus as Messiah. And as you might imagine, I'm more comfortable with the second view than the first. However, 
A vast amount has been written and preached on this topic, and I don't pretend to have done anything more than scratch the surface. But there is one simple thought I'd like to add, and I've not come across this thought in any of my scratching the surface. For me, the thing that really leaps off the page is Jesus' immediate reaction to Peter's confession. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So to paraphrase, Jesus is saying, Peter, you haven't been told this by anybody, and you have not worked this out for yourself. This is a revelation from on high, and you are most certainly blessed. The fact, I think, that uh, that Peter had spoken it out is not really that much of a surprise. Peter comes across as one of those people who, once they have grasped and understood something, will sooner or later let you know about it. He was a man with something to say. Jesus is not just excited that his father has revealed this precious truth to Peter, but as I see it, this divine revelation given to those who are meek enough to receive it and then followed by a bold confession of truth, will be that rock on which his church is built. So do you see that Jesus is excited by the fact that Peter has received this on a hotline from God. God has been gracious to reveal this this truth about Jesus to Peter. This aspect of divine revelation reminds me of a verse in Isaiah 54, where the Lord is comforting his people who are feeling an oppressed and without hope. He says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Now we come on to Jesus' comment about the gates of Hades. If the, if the version of the Bible that you normally use, that is hell, and that's my, my version does, has hell rather than Hades, then you need to appreciate that Jesus is not referring to Gehenna, which is the most often tran- word translated as hell in the Gospels. It's Hades. And Hades is a Greek word referring to the realm of the dead. It's more or less equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church of Christ. In Hebrews, gates can be used as an idiom to refer to the authority or the decisions of a city. Since the king or the city elders would sit in the gates where they made their judgments. So when, for example, the angel says to Abraham, your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, it means that they shall 
rule over their enemies and make decisions for them. With this in mind, I think there are two aspects to this promise of Jesus. Firstly, it means that the counsels and schemes of the enemy, personified as death, will not prevail against the church because he who is within us is greater than he who is within the world. But more fundamentally than that, the gates of Hades will not prevail simply because of the victory of Christ, which in a word is resurrection. So to quote Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised indestructible and then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. Yes. And in, and in verse five, 19, Jesus says, goes on to say to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the usual way to understand the keys of the kingdom is in Peter's role in announcing the gospel firstly to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, and then to the Samaritans. Remember, he and John go to the Samaritans and lay hands on, then they receive the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 8. And thirdly, opening the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He opens the door of the gospel to them in contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees who Jesus describes as those who shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's Matthew 23, 13. Binding and loosing, the phrase Jesus uses, is a rabbinical term and has the meaning of forbidding and permitting. And Peter is given the authority thereby to exercise discipline in the church. And we see a striking example of this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, in Peter's word, lied to the Holy Spirit and they ended up dropping dead in front of Peter. And great fear filled the church. And Matthew chapter 18 has the same wording of binding and loosing, and is used more generally. So it appears that this authority to, is extended to others who are responsible for matters of discipline in the church. Jesus' final words in verse 20 of this passage are a strict warning to keep this revelation of Jesus as Messiah to themselves. 
In all three synoptic gospels, up to this point in the story, Jesus is not reported as using the title Christ or Messiah when talking about himself. In fact, through all the gospels, he's careful not to use the term. One reason for this was because virtually everyone had a distorted or completely wrong understanding of how the Messiah Jesus would liberate his people. I can only think of two occasions when he feels free to refer to himself as Christ. At least that's the way it's recorded in the gospel. One is after his resurrection, during that Bible study he gives on the Emmaus Road, where he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't you wish that that had been recorded? (laughs) The second occasion, which is rather special, I think, was to the Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. As you may recall in this story, they were having a conversation in the middle of the day. And they get onto the subject of where God should be worshipped. Jesus explains that very soon, the place of worship will not be important because God is spirit and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. She was thinking it was Mount Gerizim and the Jews were claiming it's, it's here in Jerusalem. And she says, well, I know that Christ is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says, you're speaking to him now. Or I who speak to you am he. She was not looking for a Messiah to conquer the Roman oppressors or to destroy the wicked. She just wanted the truth so the arguments would come to an end. I think Jesus was so relieved that someone longed for truth more than they wanted judgment and retribution. So he revealed himself to her as the Messiah. However, there is a third case when in his trial, he was questioned by the high priest and therefore was obliged to answer. And Matthew records it this way. And the high priest answered him and said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I find it interesting that Jesus still prefers to use the Son of Man identity, although in this case, he is unambiguously referring to this powerful vision recorded in Daniel chapter seven, where, the Son of Man, where one like the Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and receives an everlasting and indestructible kingdom. 
One final thought. An uninformed outside observer looking at this itinerant teacher in the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi would think that you know, this teacher followed by a rag bag of n- nobodies would think they amounted less than the smallest footnote in history. But we know differently. We know that the one who spoke the universe into being had also spoken a word in the heart of one of these nobodies. And that would change him forever. And step by step, the same revelation would come to many of the other nobodies until eventually this indestructible group would reach round the world, transform the lives of millions of people and extend beyond even time itself. That is not a footnote in history. Isaiah knew this already and he spoke about it in our reading from chapter 51 and I'm going to read three verses just to show it to you. So this is the big picture that Isaiah is conveying to a dejected people. Speaking as the Lord says, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for teaching will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell on it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And now that is good news. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.